Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11. A very short passage, but a very powerful passage. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, and we'll be considering Christ's martyrs. John chapter 12, verse 9, give attention to God's holy word. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have come in obedience to your command and in faithful anticipation of you fulfilling your promises to show us your glory and to make this congregation your dwelling place upon the earth. We ask now, O Lord, that you would fulfill our desire and fulfill your promises by pouring out your Spirit upon us. We might behold your glory, and in beholding your glory, we might be transformed into that same image of glory. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the ancient world, there were seven wonders that were built. And if you look at the seven wonders of the ancient world, you'll see some things that uh, make sense. Uh, for instance, the, the mausoleum of one of the dead kings of Greece. I can't recall his name. It's not that important. Uh, the, 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 the grand mausoleum that they, they built for him to commemorate his memory. The hanging gardens of Babylon. It's a very um, wonderful display of human engineering and architecture. But some of the other wonders of the ancient world might seem a little odd to us. And one of those ancient wonders of the world was the great lighthouse of Alexandria, I believe. And this, this lighthouse was such a marvel of engineering, and the, the, the lighthouse was put in the harbor of Alexandria. It may seem odd to us because it's not perhaps evident to us how important lighthouses were in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, this may come as a shock, but they didn't have GPS. They didn't have Google Maps on their smartphone. And so as you were traveling through the ancient world, you had to figure out where you were by what you could see with your eyes. You might have a map. That map may or may not be very good. And you had to go based on the position of the stars or what you could see on the horizon. Now on land, this is difficult enough but when you're traveling across the sea, this is doubly difficult, because if you've ever been out in the open ocean, as the waves rise and fall, your horizon rises and falls. And as you're floating on the waves, there's really no fixed point to look at and figure out where you are. Now imagine as you're uh, sailing on the sea, you're trying to land at a port. Well, one of the things that a lot of ports had around them was shallow rocks and reefs and things that could destroy your boat right on the verge of landing safely. And so here is why ancient man, and all the way up until 
uh, modern man would use lighthouses. These lighthouses would be positioned so as to cast light so that the ships coming to the harbor could tell the harbor is over there and there's dangerous rocks around that lighthouse. We need to go around it before we reach the harbor. That was the purpose of lighthouses. The lighthouse's purpose was not to draw ships to itself, but it was to draw ships closer so that they could go around and find safe harbor in the city. Likewise, also in the Christian life, God has, as it were, appointed you and I as lighthouses. You and I are, as it were, positioned in front of the safe harbor of Christ. And it is the light that we shine into a dark and confusing world that leads people to the safe harbor of Christ. Now, as we look at our passage, and, and the, 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 the title that I've chosen for this, uh, I've chosen for this on purpose. You may know that the word martyr in our day has become associated with those who have died for Christ. That's what we often think of when we think of martyrs. Those who have shed blood, those who have been burnt at the stake, bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But originally, the word martyr simply meant witness. It was a term that was found in courtrooms. It was a term that was found all over the ancient Greek world. And if you were a martyr, you were somebody who showed up and gave testimony to prove what was being argued. Now, you can see easily how the word martyr, witness, gets transformed in the Christian context because often those who give testimony to Christ have to seal their testimony with their blood. Because as we're going to see in this passage, witnessing for Christ, being a beacon of light to draw in the souls of men that they might be saved, also draws in the swarms of locusts. It also draws in the attention of the enemies of Christ. And the enemies of Christ, not wanting Christ to be glorified, will do everything they can to snuff out the light. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see specifically that the power of Christ makes the people of Christ martyrs for Christ. The power of Christ makes the people of Christ martyrs for Christ. Before we get into this passage in a little bit of detail, I just want you to keep something in mind, especially this tension with the idea of martyrdom. What, what we have to recognize, we're going to see it here, but what we have to recognize about being a witness for Christ is that even if your blood is never called for, even if nobody is ever going to seek your life because you've testified to Christ's power in your life, all of Christ's witnesses need to be ready to shed their blood for Christ. All of us need to recognize that when we give testimony to Christ's power, that may require us to shed our blood. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of the ancient church. In the ancient church, the, the execution of Christians had reached such a level 
and the corruption of the church had reached such a level, at least in this area, that people had what we call a martyr's complex. You've heard of this before. People who are so committed to an idea that they must be destroyed for it. They are willing, uh, even more so than the average man, they, they want to be killed for the sake of Christ or for the sake of their idea. That is not the purpose of the Scriptures, and that is not true witnessing for Christ. True witnessing for Christ is what we're going to see here, and it begins with the power of Christ. Notice first off in verse, uh, sorry, the outline, verse 9 is the power of Christ, and verses 10 and 11 are the martyrs of Christ. Verse 9 is the power of Christ, and verses 10 and 11 are the martyrs of Christ. Now remember the context of John chapter 12. John chapter 11, we've just seen this great miracle of Lazarus being called back to life by the word of Christ. Now in chapter 12, we're getting ready for the crucifixion. The beginning of chapter 12 says that the Passover was six days away. This is that great Passover, the Passover at which Christ will institute the Last Supper and at which Christ will be crucified along with the Passover lambs. So this is where everything is moving now. We're heading towards the crucifixion. And part of the crucifixion is the plotting of the high priests. The high priests are already scheming to put Christ to death. This is now the context that we find ourselves in. On the way to Jerusalem, Christ has stopped at Bethany and is enjoying a fellowship meal with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and several others. Mary has anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus with an expensive uh, oil, and he's being prepared for his day of burial. Now, while all of this is going on, John now switches focus to the crowds. Look at verse 9. A great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Notice, firstly, in verse 9, there are massive crowds wanting to see the Lord Jesus, but not only see the Lord Jesus, they're being drawn by the lighthouse. They're being drawn by Lazarus and the witnessing function that Lazarus serves in this context. You go back to John chapter 11, and you look at some of the motivations behind why Christ performed this miracle. He says in verse 41, verse 41, he begins to pray before he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And Christ says, they took away the stone from the place where he was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And then the very next thing Jesus says is, Lazarus, come forth. Now we need to keep this in mind that when Christ exerts his power, it is a benefit to us it certainly benefited Lazarus. He's no longer dead. He's alive. But the primary purpose, the, the ultimate purpose of Christ extending his power is to glorify himself. Now, you and I need to wrestle with this. 
If you have experienced the power of Christ, if he has delivered you from your sins, that is not primarily for your benefit, although you do benefit from that. There are great benefits that come from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the primary reason is so that he would be glorified in you, so that you would serve as Lazarus serves, as someone to draw people to him. This is the the primary reason throughout all of the scriptures for God's working in the life of his people. Look at an example from Isaiah. You turn back to the book of Isaiah, in particular chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43 comes in in the context of an extended argument that Isaiah is having with the false gods of the nations. Isaiah 40 through about 53, there's an extended argument that Isaiah is engaged in proving that Jehovah is the one true and living God and that the gods of the nations are false, dead, dumb idols. And in the midst of that, it's, it's almost like a legal debate. God is challenging the idols of the nations. Prove yourselves to be gods. Declare the future now. Perform some miracle so that we can know that you are gods. And then in 43, it moves to this more narrow legal setting. Isaiah 43, verse 8, the Lord is still speaking to the idolaters. He says, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. That's a description, by the way of the false gods. One of the things that Isaiah and the other prophets will say is that the gods of the nations have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. Now he's applying this to those that worship false gods. Bring out the blind who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses, that they may be justified, or or let them hear and say, it is truth. Now the Lord switches and begins to speak to Israel. You are my witnesses. You are my testimony that I am indeed the true and living God. The Lord goes on to speak to his people. Verse 10, he says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. And before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses." You notice the emphasis of this passage that the Lord has performed a great salvation for Israel. He has delivered them from their enemies, from their sins, from death itself for the purpose of proving that he is the one true and living God. Isaiah summarizes this idea in verse 7 of chapter 43. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Returning now to John chapter 12. 
when God acts in your life, He acts to bring glory to Himself. Now, as I said, this is a very important thing for us to understand. We live in a day that Paul the Apostle warned us about. In the letters to Timothy, he said, perilous times will come in the latter days. Men will be lovers of themselves and despisers of God. We live in such days. We live in days where most people in the society around you and sadly many in the church itself are lovers of themselves. And because they love themselves, they look at the gospel as primarily benefiting themselves. And when God's providence, when God's dispensations are no longer beneficial to themselves, they begin to depart from the faith. They begin to dabble in false religions because they've forgotten this fundamental principle. When God works in your life, it is to glorify Himself. Now, I want you to be encouraged by this, brothers and sisters. If you get this truth in your bones, you will be able to endure anything God sends to you. You know, we've been praying for the church in Neon, Kentucky, the, the massive flooding that they've endured. I've spoken with Jay on the phone. That's the, the pastor up there. And, you know, right after it happened, he, like any of us, was, was very shocked by these floods. And he kept saying, he just kept thinking and saying, what a waste. What, what a complete waste of material. His entire pastoral library was wiped out, about $20,000 worth of books that he built over, a, over years in the ministry. And, and in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the hardship, you can look at it and say, this is a waste. Why did this happen? But he was encouraged, and he returns to this truth. As we prayed together, he, he, he mentioned that the Lord is working out his sovereign plan. Whatever is going to happen out of this, God will be glorified through that congregation. God is going to be exalted in the midst of that community. We, one way that God is exalted is nobody from his congregation lost their life. And at this point, I think the count is upwards of 20 people in Neon, Kentucky have lost their lives in this flood. Neon's not a very big city. And so 20 people out of a community that size is massive. The Lord is going to be glorified through this, and that's his primary reason for doing it. And in Pastor Jay Bennett, this is one of the grounds of his confidence to keep going. It's one of the grounds of his endurance. It will also be a ground of your endurance. It will also be not only a ground of your endurance, but it will provide material for you to pray. You remember in the Sunday school, for those that were there, we we looked at the topic of prayer. And one of the things we noticed in prayer is that true prayer is done for the glory of God, not my benefit primarily. It's done that God might be glorified. This is how Christ ends the Lord's prayer that he teaches us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
So as you pray, take this truth and use it as an argument with the Lord. Use it as part of your prayers, that you're desiring to glorify God through this, that you want to be a witness to Christ's power. We notice also in John chapter 12, verse 9, it is Christ's power in Lazarus that is on display. The people came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus. Now, who is this Lazarus? Why is Lazarus remarkable? Lazarus is remarkable because he's the one that Jesus raised from the dead. He is the one that Christ has resurrected by his word. Notice, firstly, the way that God displays his power, the kind of power that God displays through the gospel is nothing less than resurrection power. The power of the gospel is the power of the resurrection. And it could be no other way, could it, brothers and sisters? Because it is only God Almighty who can raise the dead. It is only God Almighty who can bring things that do not exist and call them into existence. Every time God displays His power through the gospel, it is resurrection power. Now, in Lazarus's life, it's an actual resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. But in your life and in my life, Christ displays the same power through your spiritual growth. Look with me at a few passages. Uh, beginning in Romans chapter 6, there's, there's almost too many passages to look at, especially in Paul's letters, because Paul is constantly talking about the power of the resurrection. Romans chapter 6 is one. There's a couple others that we're going to look at. Romans chapter 6 verse 1, Paul begins and says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For if he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise also, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now that's a longer passage, but I just want you to notice this one important point. It is because of the power of the resurrection 
that you have been delivered from your sins. Not only from the guilt of sin, but Paul's point here is from the power of sin. And this is a display of Christ's resurrection power. Turn with me also to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as he prays for the church in verse 19, he prays that the saints would be able to understand what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sat him at his own right hand in heavenly places. The power that is available to you through the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing less than the power of the resurrection. And Paul's prayer here is that you would know and understand the power of the resurrection that is given to you. And he uses himself as an example. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the last one that we'll look at, but this may perhaps be the most important one. 1 Corinthians 15, as you should uh, know, Paul is arguing for the truth of the resurrection. He begins at the beginning of the chapter with eyewitness testimony, but then he moves to the testimony of his own life and the power of his changed life that he is one alive from the dead. Look at what he says in verse 9, beginning in verse 8. He's giving the list of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. And he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Notice what Paul is saying in that passage. This is part of the proof of the resurrection. And what Paul is saying is that I once was a persecutor of the church. I once was dead in my sins and transgressions. But by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection, I am now what I am. I am a diligent apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ that God has brought much fruit out of. You see, it's the power of the resurrection that has made Paul a witness to the resurrection. And this is the power that he displays in the life of his people. Now, there's a couple of things to realize from this. First, as a Christian in Christ... There is no necessity for you to sin. In Christ, there is no reason for you to sin. I'm not saying you won't sin. And I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect in this life. But I'm saying that by the power of Christ, God has delivered you from the power of sin. God has set you free through the power of the resurrection to walk in His ways. Not perfectly, but acceptably through Christ. 
And this display of the power of Christ, the resurrection power of Christ, shows itself through good works. Many misunderstand the doctrine of good works, and, and we think that good works serve no purpose in the Christian life. But if you, if you study the Scriptures, and even as we read in Revelation 14 this morning, the good works of the saints follow them into glory, and the good works of the saints now are the evidences of the power of a resurrection life. Notice that Paul says throughout, you've been delivered from your sins. It is the power of the resurrection that saves you from your sins, and it is the power of the resurrection that enables you to perform good works. And it is these good works in particular that serve as a witness. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Our Lord is teaching the disciples and He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see here the place of good works. Your good works are the light of the world. Your life of holy, dedicated obedience to God and love to your neighbor is the light of the nations that brings hope and shows people sin is not victorious. Sin will not win in the end. Your life of good works is what shows people in this generation that good triumphs over evil. Brothers and sisters, I cannot exhort you enough how necessary this light is, is, is today. If you don't pay too much attention to movies and TV, but if you, if you pay enough of attention to movies and TV, most of the creative energy of this culture is all running into moral ambiguity or very dark um, anti-heroic stories. Most of the stories that are coming out end up with uh, everyone dying, nobody is really good, and everything just ends in tragedy. That, that's where all of these things are going. It's very much like Greek tragedies. If you read the Greek tragedies of ancient Greece, everybody dies and nobody wins and the gods have a party. That's what the Greek tragedies are like. The reason the Greek tragedies were that way and the reason our movies and TV are going in that direction because the Greeks, just like modern Americans, are hopeless. Most people, when they look at their lives, they think evil is too powerful, sin will overcome, there's no hope, there's no point, and they produce dark media or they take their own lives. Part of the reason for this is that we're not letting our light shine before men. We're not performing our good deeds. We're not being these kind of witnesses 
to the power of Christ to overcome the power of wickedness. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. When he's writing to the Philippian church, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, according to his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Our generation is perverse. Our generation is crooked. You, therefore, be witnesses of Christ to the power of Christ. And when Christ's power is on display, he turns his people into his martyrs. This is what we find in verses 10 and 11. As you witness for Christ, you're going to see two things. Let me just uh, be clear here because I, I know sometimes we talk about witnessing. There's some misunderstanding there. When I speak of being a witness for Christ, I'm not talking necessarily about evangelizing and handing out gospel tracts all of the time. There's a place for that. There's a lot of good that can come from that. But that's not what I'm talking about primarily. What I am talking about primarily is living a consecrated life. Living a life of sincere, diligent obedience to Christ. Guarding your tongue. uh, Guarding your time. Using your money in a godly way. Living a lifestyle that follows the Lord's ways and follows His paths. That's what it means to be a witness. And from time to time, you'll have a chance to share the gospel with people, as 1 Peter 3 tells us. But as you live that kind of life, as you live a distinct life from the world, there's going to be two responses. People will love you, and people will hate you. Just as we see here in the life of Lazarus. Verse 9, all these people want to come and see Lazarus. And then at the, at the end of verse 11, the, there are many Jews who believed in Jesus because of Lazarus. You know, I, I once knew a preacher. He told me one time, uh, he, he ran a construction company and he would preach on the side. That wasn't his primary calling. But he ran a construction company and he would talk about Jesus on the job site and with the men that he worked with. And he told me one day, uh, a guy who was working on a job with him over the course of about six months came up to him and said, you know, John, this guy's name was John, I think you're the real deal because I've been watching you these six months and, and you actually live what you talk about living. And so the, the, the witness of this guy, his life of good deeds, his life of holiness is what convinced that guy that the the gospel was true, and he was able to share more of the gospel with him. On the other side, I've seen the other side of this as well. When I was surveying, I I worked, uh, you know, at a surveying company. Surveyors tend to be a pretty rough crowd. You you have to be half crazy to, to be a surveyor, and that tends to bring some eccentric people. Well, I worked in the Deep South, and of course, in the Deep South, everybody's got a gospel testimony. Even if they're addicted to drugs, they've got a gospel testimony about how Jesus saved them. Well, there was one guy in this company who was always talking about Jesus, constantly. He was an okay worker. He, he was not the best, but he wasn't the worst. But then one day, we got our paychecks, and we got the annual bonus. Now, the way it worked in this company was that if, if you were a good employee, you got a bonus. If you were not a good employee, you did not get a bonus. 
the way they would give it to you, they'd give you the one normal paycheck and they'd give you that extra check. And everyone knew if you walked out that day with two checks, you got the bonus. Well, this guy only got one check. And as he walked out into the field area, he was cussing like a sailor, up and down in front of all the guys. You see, everything he said about Jesus was undermined by that unholy way of using his tongue. It was undermined because he denied the power of godliness by indulging in that. But it's those who are true witnesses who live a godly life that draws people in, and through them, people begin to believe in Jesus. People begin to believe in the Savior. Here's one important thing for us, and I do want to encourage you with this. It is more important in your interactions with the world that you do the right thing rather than say the right thing. It is more important that you do the right thing rather than you say the right thing. It says more to people in the world if you act with honesty, integrity, and uh, godliness than if you talk about predestination, than if you talk about the righteousness of Christ, than if you talk about all this theology that you most certainly know. It's more of an impact because those things are a display of the power of Christ. What you're also going to see, people coming to Christ, people wanting to learn more about Christ, you're also going to see people hating you. Because as Christ's witnesses, you are a display of the power of Christ. And Christ's enemies hate the power of Christ. We see that also in verses 10 and 11. The chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. And they did this because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. There's two things to notice here. First, the chief priests are jealous of Jesus and Lazarus. Notice it says in verse 11, many of the Jews went away. Went away from where? They went away from the high priest's authority. They went away from the high priest's influence and teaching. They began to see in Christ that there really is a prophet of God among us. We need to listen to him and not to you. When the wicked see the power of Christ and they see people leaving their influence, their jealousy will be provoked. Secondly, uh, the enemies of Christ hate the power of Christ not only because they lose influence, but also because it reminds them that they will be defeated. You see, the enemies of Christ are in love with themselves and they're in love with their sins. The power of Christ shows them that the path of life they have chosen is wrong. That the path of life they have chosen leads to a dead end. I'll give you one more anecdote from my days in the surveying company. A lot of colorful characters in the surveying company. When I was working there, um, you know, I was a young Christian, and I had this job, and I was very thankful for this job, and I, I get to work, and, and one of the things you find at, at this company, at least, is that there tended to be a lot of downtime. Um, the field house is getting ready, the crew chief is getting his orders for the day, and all the guys were milling around, waiting to go to the next job. 
Well, in this company, we were paid by the hour. So you clock in, you start getting paid. What I thought in, in that company, naively, was I'm on the clock. I need to be doing productive work. It's a crazy idea, I know. So I'm on the clock, and, I'm, and there's nothing really to do until the crew chief comes out. So I start flagging stakes. Now, what that means is you got these wooden stakes. You put certain colored flags on it to indicate what you're doing on the survey. A survey crew can go through 100 of these in a day, and so you need a lot of flags on a lot of stakes. And I thought, this is a good way to use my time. So I start doing this, and one of my crewmates, they're all talking and smoking and joking, and I'm in there tying up stakes in the van. He comes around and blows his stack at me. Now, this shocked me a little bit. I was like, wow, this is, uh, I didn't expect this. He, he blew his stack, he slammed the door shut on the van, and he said, Ben, quit working. We all know that you're a good worker. Just stop. You see? It was a small act of diligence, a, a small act of trying to be a conscientious Christian that set him off because he'd chosen a path of sin. Likewise in the life of Lazarus. Likewise in your life. When the power of Christ is on display, people will hate it. People will reject it. And they may one day try to kill you. Just like they're going to try and kill Lazarus. Just like throughout the history of the church, Christ's people have been killed for his testimony. Now, I'm not saying that all of you here are going to die a martyr's death. Statistically, most likely, most of us, maybe none of us, will die a martyr's death. But you might. You might be called upon to lay down your life. You might be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. But in order to make that ultimate sacrifice, in order to seal your testimony with your own blood, you need to be prepared now to suffer a cross look, to suffer an angry word, to suffer a loss of promotion, to suffer loss of opportunity. You need to be prepared to suffer in small ways for the sake of Christ. And as you do that, you will show yourself to be Christ's martyrs. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed extend that power to us even more, giving us victory over our sins and filling our lives with the fruits of righteousness which are through Jesus Christ, that we might not only be a benefit to one another, but ultimately a glorious witness to you and to your power. And we ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.